If you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, I introduced it briefly saying that Peter is writing to people who are suffering. We all suffer at some time in our Christian lives, but uh, these people are under a continual form of suffering. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But that's the context, and we looked last week and saw that their hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So would you please stand as I read the Word of God? Hear now God's Word as we have it in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You may be seated. So how do you handle suffering, strife, sorrow? Does it kill your joy? How do you handle those difficulties that come because we live in a fallen world, because we sin ourselves, because people sin against us? How do you handle those? And where does your joy go? The Bible tells us that the Christian life is to be characterized by a certain joy. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, in case you missed it, again I say rejoice. So how are you doing? 
Paul writes that to the Philippians when he's in prison, chained to a guard, awaiting trial and probable death. Rejoice always amidst suffering, amidst trials, amidst persecution. And Peter writes this letter to people who are knowing and experiencing all those kinds of things. They're suffering for the faith. Precisely what was going on, we don't know, but we get a hint of it in the various ways in which uh, Peter addresses them. He tells them that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What were those trials? We don't know at that point. But if we look at chapter 3, verse 14, it appears that they're suffering for being righteous. That is, they're living godly lives in an ungodly culture, and they're being ostracized and persecuted because of it. And if you don't know anything about that, just wait. I believe it's coming. The more righteous you are, the more Christ-like you are, the more you will suffer for the faith. That's exactly what Jesus tells us. In this world you will have tribulation. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Peter says in chapter 4, don't be surprised at the suffering you're enduring. Our question this morning is not, do you suffer, will you suffer, can you suffer, but where's your joy in that? What happens to the rejoice always, again I say rejoice, when suffering and trial and persecution and sorrow from little to large enter your life? How do you handle it? The fact that Christians suffer is well known throughout the Scriptures. There are those who preach that Christians should expect only health, only wealth, only ease, but that's not the Scriptures. Jesus Himself, Paul tells us, Peter tells us, John tells us, expect suffering. Where's your joy? And not only do we know of the fact of suffering, the question for us this morning is not just the fact of suffering, the question is, what's its purpose? Not what, but why? Why does, as we might ask, God allow suffering? Wrong question. Why does God purpose suffering? And that's what Peter's addressing in this chapter. I find three things that Peter is telling his hearers today in the midst of their suffering, and and hopefully it will impact your life as well. Three purposes that God has as He orchestrates, ordains, allows, and even directs the suffering of His people. And the first is very, very simple. Not only are trials and suffering purposeful, but the purpose, as He tells us in verse 6 and 7, is to test the genuineness of your faith. To test the genuineness of your faith. If I asked you and you raised your hands, I might say, how many of you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And and hopefully most of you would raise your hands. And then I might say, if we tested that, how well would it endure? Peter's saying the first purpose of God ordaining suffering for His people is that it's a test of the genuineness of your faith. Now, who would test the genuineness of your faith? The answer, God. And he's sovereign. So he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. He orchestrates all the events that take place in humanity by his provident direction 
these things are happening to you under His ordination. His purposes ripen in your life. And one of those, Peter says, is this little testing, testing of the genuineness of your faith. Therefore, testing, trials, sufferings are not arbitrary, but purposeful under the direction of a sovereign God. And so the question comes to mind, wait a minute, trials are negative, bad, God is good, how can that be? Well, you misunderstand the nature of trials. Trials are often good. A trial in a courtroom is good. If you're guilty, you will receive justice. And, and the one who has been harmed will receive justice. And, and the purpose of a trial in a courtroom is to render justice and make sure that righteousness reigns. And, and that's good. It doesn't always happen, but that's the purpose. That's the intent. It's a trial, but it's good. All kinds of people and things undergo trials. You develop a new medicine. You put it through trials to make sure it will do what it says it will do and not harm. Horses, animals go through trials to make sure that they will perform as you want them to. Trials are good. Trials are good. And God has His purposes. In fact, the illustration that Peter uses here is another form of trial of testing. More precious than gold that perishes is your faith. Think of how they test or try gold. The desire is that gold become pure. And so one way in which they do that, I looked it up, they put the gold ore in a crucible, that is a vessel that will not be burned or melt, and they put it in an oven and they heat it to 1,100 degrees. And that melts the gold, which is by nature very, very heavy. It sinks. The impurities rise to the top. They scrape the dross off the top, and they stir the gold and keep doing that until no more impurities float to the top. That's testing, trying gold to make it pure. In and out of the furnace goes the gold. In and out of the heat, impurities being taken away. Does that sound like your life sometimes? In and out of the furnace of affliction, of suffering? It's good because the goal is to get rid of the impurities. And Peter is saying, God is testing your faith like that because your faith is more precious than even gold. And so the first purpose of trials in your life are so that the genuineness of your faith is proved, tested. It's not a random series of events. The sovereign God orders and foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. Testing is a planned activity of God in His children because He wants their faith to be pure. Think of the gold. It doesn't fall into the fire. It is put there because someone wants it pure. So you are put into the fires of life by your sovereign God to test your faith. Your faith is more precious than that gold. And so the first purpose of present-day sufferings day after day, all the rest of your life, is that your faith might be purified. Here's the question for you then. Not, are you suffering? Have you suffered? Will you suffer? We all know the answer to that. The question is, how do you respond and what happens to your joy? 
What happens to your joy then? You tend to do what many people do, people of faith, people not of faith, that when the suffering comes, you begin to question either God's sovereignty or His love or His care for you. You say, God, why would you let this happen to me? I'm your child. You adopted me as your son, your daughter. You made me your own. I belong to you, and yet right now, I'm going through the furnace of affliction, and it doesn't feel like you love me. How could you let this happen to me? Why is my life so bad when I see the wicked prospering? Have you read the Psalms? It's not a new problem. Why is it, God, that when everyone else looks at me, they see a suffering person? Do you want your child to look like you're causing difficulties in his life when they're doing so well? Is that what you want, oh God? Why can't I be wealthier, better looking, taller, richer, healthier, wiser? Why, God, do all these things happen to me? Those are the questions we ask, but the question is answered by Peter saying, God has a purpose in your suffering, and he's testing your faith. And that's how God does things. We just read the story in Genesis of Abraham being tested by God. Imagine that test in your life. Take your son, your only son, the son of the promise, the son that says that you will have descendants, and take him and sacrifice him on an altar. It's a test of Abraham's faith in God. Will God perform what he said he would do, which is to give him many descendants through Isaac? In the book of Hebrews, it says that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham's faith is tested. He follows through to the point of raising the knife. And God stays his hand and provides a substitute sacrifice. Abraham's faith is tested. Will he believe God or not? Peter says to these people and to us that all of the trials of your life are a form of testing that God has his purpose because he wants your faith to be as pure gold. And that's the reason, the first reason, the purpose that God has for testing you in this life. The question is, how do you respond? You can't see God. Right now, Peter says to these people, even though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And you don't see Him, but you believe in Him. Can you say that? Can you say that you believe that what God is doing in your life causes your faith to grow and mature as your faith is tested? Or do you fall back into the pit of despair, discouragement, and disbelief? Just knowing that God has a purpose for your faith, that it's being tested, can be very, very helpful in time of trial. But there's a second purpose. Peter says it's not only the present testing of your faith that is the purpose of God, but the second purpose is just as important. It's to prepare you for heaven in the future. So there's a present purpose and a future purpose. And you see that in the verses 6, 7, 8, 9. In verse 7, your faith is being tested, verse 9, so that you will obtain the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. The goal of faith is not to have pure faith. The goal of faith is that you would be saved in all that that means, which we looked at last week in the opening verses 
that you have a hope of a resurrection of Jesus Christ that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who are being guarded by God through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, trusting that Christ not only died for your sins but but has reconciled you to Himself, is shaping you and sanctifying you and making you holy so that you will be fit for heaven, your inheritance, where you will be with Christ in glory forever. That's the goal of faith, your salvation in its fullest sense, the presence of God forever. And so he says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's the word we get apocalypse from or appearance or coming or revealing. When Jesus comes in all of His glory and all of this earth is taken up into its newness that God has ordained from the foundation of the world, and you are brought into the presence of God's spirit and body, you will be in His presence forever. That's the goal. And that's why your faith is being tested. So present testing for future glory. And why is that so important? Because pure faith is the only kind that's allowed into heaven. Sanctified believers are fit for heaven. Unsanctified believers are not. The process that God has ordained is that in this life, the testing of your faith is to move you closer and closer to Christ-likeness so that when you get to glory, you are perfectly sanctified and you will be like Him, the Scriptures say. And so all that dross and impurity that exists in your life and in your faith is burned away in the fires of life. And when you get to glory, you will be perfect. Wouldn't your spouse like that right now? Wouldn't you like that right now? A dear friend of mine used to say, you will be sanctified whether you like it or not. But trust me, you will like it because you will be like Jesus. And then and only then will you be able to be in His presence. And so Peter is arguing and making very clear that the whole process of what he's described in these verses, that you're begotten and regenerated, born again to a living hope for an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, and you're being kept by God's power for this, it's all for this purpose, to fit you for that place. And so the sufferings of here and now are for then and there. That's the second purpose. The goal is to make you like Jesus. I don't know if this story is true or not. It's a great story, so I hope it is. Michelangelo, the great artist, was asked how he sculpted out of one piece of marble, 17 feet tall, that glorious statue of David. Maybe you've seen it or certainly seen pictures of it. 17 feet tall and so rendered that it's actually larger at the top. His head looks overly large, but when you're on the ground looking up, it's all proportional. How did he do that? And the story is, well, it's very, very simple, Michelangelo said. You just chisel away everything that's not David. How does God make you like his son, Jesus Christ? He just chisels away everything It's not like Jesus. You and I, sinners by birth and by nature and by action, 
and by practice must have all of that impurity chiseled away by the sanctifying grace of God. And one of the means he uses is suffering. Because you see, it's in suffering, Peter's reminding us, that we trust Christ all the more. We don't trust ourselves, we trust Christ. We're at our wit's end. We can't handle it. We don't know how to come to the conclusions we need. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves in suffering. And we either cry out to God or we cry against God and shake our fists. His desire is that we depend all of our lives upon Him. And so by allowing suffering in our lives, His purposes come to pass. You are shaped. You are changed. You are chiseled into Christ-likeness. And ultimately, that's for the third purpose. So you will have joy. Again, Peter and Paul and Jesus himself talk about the necessity of joy in the Christian life. You are to have joy. You are to be joyful. You are to be joyful because of who you are and whose you are. You belong to Jesus. And the sufferings of this life tend to want to bring that joy down. We, we go into sorrow. We, we go into despair. But even in the midst of suffering, Peter is arguing we need to have joy. In this you rejoice, he says. In what? In the hope that we have. The hope that Jesus Christ is so shaping us and reforming us and remaking us so that we will be like him. That should bring us joy. And we tend to think about the joy in the future. We tend to think about the joy that will be ours in glory. But the promise and the direction of the Scripture is that we are to have joy here and now. How can we possibly have joy in the midst of suffering? Only if we realize the purposes of the suffering. Only when we realize that God is shaping us and chiseling away the imperfections so that we understand why these things are happening and therefore get the idea that God is making us to be like His Son so we'll be fitted for glory. And those are the purposes of our suffering. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Now, can you say that your sufferings in this life are slight and momentary afflictions? The man who's writing this is a man who, as it describes himself in 2 Corinthians, as having been multiply shipwrecked, beaten, robbed, put in prison, slight momentary afflictions. Yours are different. You've had all kinds of trials. People you've trusted have turned against you. People you love have denied your love for you. Other people have come and harmed you by their sin against you. You've harmed others, and your sin against them or against yourself has brought all kinds of difficulties in your life. Maybe you've experienced some form of persecution. Maybe you're very much alone. Maybe you're suffering ill health. Maybe you're in anxiety over the things of this world. Whatever they are, Paul is calling these slight momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so you see, it's a mental exercise. 
in the midst of the difficulties of this life, you recognize God has His purposes in shaping me and molding me into the image of Christ, so I'll be fit for glory in the future. And therefore, I look at these things with the mind of Christ and say, thank you, Lord, and even in this I have my joy in you. You're not joyous about the affliction itself. You're joyous because God has His purposeful work in you. Think of the opposite. What if God was doing nothing in your life? What if you had it on easy street and you had all the money and health and wealth and everything you needed in life, everything in life was perfect? Do you think that would bring you joy? It's a temporary fleeting joy. And it's not the joy of someone who walks with Christ. The hope and the joy is not only in the future, it's in the present because in the present we see what God is doing. And that's Peter's purpose here. These people are suffering in various ways. He wants to show them that the trials and tribulations of this life are just as much part of their salvation as is glory in heaven. Some people are so future-oriented they can't live in the present. Some people are so present-oriented they can't see what the future holds. The Christian must have eyes in both. God is at work in your life, thanks be to God. He has bought you with the precious blood of His Son. He is shaping you and molding you into His image again so that you will be fit for heaven. That's the whole plan and purpose. And when we see that and believe that, our faith is strengthened. We trust in God. We're willing to do what He calls us to do, even to go through the suffering. And thus, sufferings in this present time are a good reason to rejoice. As Peter says, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, your salvation. So do you rejoice amidst your sufferings? You will need your brothers and sisters to help you in that. That's why God instituted the church. We're not all loners. We don't live the Christian life alone. He has put us together in a fellowship, so one is suffering, the other can come alongside and assist you through that time of trial. Point to these verses. Point you to Christ. Remind you of what hope you have in Jesus, that the promises are sure. Again, the story of Abraham is helpful here because it's in the midst of God making His covenant with Abraham. God is promising that He will be faithful to the covenant He has made with His son, Abraham. God has made an oath on Himself, because there is no one greater by whom He could swear. And He says to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will carry you through this trial. And so Abraham takes his son and he takes him to Mount Moriah, and he gets ready to offer the sacrifice because he trusts God. Whatever trial He brings into your life, whatever suffering is currently yours or might happen to you in the future, Will you trust God? Will you look at it and say, Lord, I do not understand, I do not see, but I believe you and your faithfulness and your promises to do good to your people. I trust in what the Word says to me, not what I can see with my eyes, not what I know in my heart, but the things that you have said to me in your Word. And I thank you that all of my joy is founded in you and you alone and in your promises. I thank you that all my joy is not future, 
but even present. What are the glories of heaven that God has promised? Sweet fellowship with Christ, fellowship with other believers, living in the presence of God without sin. What are the foretastes that He's already given you? Sweet fellowship with Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who abides with you and is with you. Sweet fellowship with believers in the church of Jesus Christ, already yours. A taste every Lord's Day of what glory will be like. This past week I was at a pastor's conference in Pennsylvania. 480 men in a room that maybe seat 500. We sang a cappello like angels. What a foretaste of glory. Brothers and sisters, Christ has promised you joy, endless joy, but it doesn't just begin in the future, it begins now, because by faith you see that even amidst the trials, you know Him, you love Him, and you're in fellowship with the saints. And while we will be sinless there forever, sin still nibbles at us here. And as we'll see next week in the sermon, we're called to be holy so that we are prepared for that time when we will be holy. The persecutions and sufferings of this life are not joyful in and of themselves, but they point you to joy because they point you to Christ. All throughout the Scriptures in the Gospels, we see the sufferings of Jesus. James reminds us that suffering is because Jesus suffered. Paul reminds us that Jesus suffered. And who are we, those who follow Christ, not to suffer as well? James says, count it all joy when you suffer various trials, that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness so that you will be perfect and complete. We don't rejoice in the suffering per se. We rejoice that God loves us enough to take us through trials, to burn off the impurities so that we become like Jesus, that we might be with Him forever. And in that, we find our joy. If someone does something merciful to you, you're thirsty, you come in the house, you've been mowing the lawn, you say, I'm thirsty, and, and they bring you a cup of cold water and say, here, that's a merciful act because you're in your misery. And you would thank them, I hope. A little mercy little thanks. The greatest mercy that has ever been shown to you is that out of the darkness and depths of your sin, God in His sovereign love called you to Himself, regenerated your spiritually dead soul, enlivened your eyes to see Jesus and your need for Him, gave you the gifts of repentance and faith that you might exercise that faith in Christ, believe on Him, and now He is running you through the ringer, so to speak, so that you would become like Jesus the original intent of why you were made. To be perfect in His sight, to, to dwell in His presence forever, here and in glory. And the sufferings of this present time, Paul says, are not worth counting with the glory that awaits. Or I would argue even the glory that is yours now. You live with Christ in you. You are bonded to Him in an unbreakable bond. And you are being prepared for a glory that cannot be diminished, cannot be defiled, cannot be broken. And it is kept in heaven for you, and you are being kept for it. 
What's a little suffering? What's a lot of suffering? Hard, yes, difficult. But will not the Christ who is doing all this in your life also be your aid, your comfort, your help through the suffering? What's our natural tendency? When suffering comes, we shake our fist at God. He wants us to grab Him by the hand and say, oh God, I cannot do this. I cannot. I know you have your purposes, but I cannot do this. And He says, yes, I know. Why do I think you put you there? So that you would cling to me, the one that you need. There's no question that the Bible tells us that we will suffer. We trust in the wrong things. We look to the wrong things. We want the wrong things. And the way in which the Lord shapes us and chisels away the parts that are not Christ-like is often very painful. But His goal, His purpose, is to make you like His Son. And He will do that in you because He wants you to be with Him forever. And finally, one thing that Peter mentions. It's possible you would think all this is just for you. That God is so gracious and kind and loving to me that that all of His saving work and all of His grace and even the sufferings that I go through is just for me, but that's not really the goal ultimately. And notice what Peter says in verse 7. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, verse 6, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in your praise and glory, right? No. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who gets the praise and the glory and honor? Not you, not me, but Jesus. So that on that day when He comes again with all of His saints who have gone to be with Him and He gathers up His people upon the earth, and we all enter through those gates. We're singing, the hymn says. We're singing, and we're not saying to one another, hey, don't you look good, Bill? Don't you look good, Sally? You're perfect. No, what we're singing is, Alleluia to the Lamb. Because all the glory and all the honor and all the praise will be to Him. Why? Because He is the one who has taken sinners and made us perfect. And He is the one who has bought us with His precious blood. And He is the one who has shaped us in His image. And He's the one who presents us to Himself in heaven that we might be with Him and praise Him forever. The goal is His glory. But it will be good for you too. It will be good for you. So if you're suffering right now, look to Jesus. If you're wondering why it's happening, see the purposes of Christ to make you, remake you in His image. But whatever you do, don't despair or think that God has somehow lost His purpose for you or overlooked you or, or is no longer loving you. No, the very thing He is putting you through is to make you like Himself because He loves you, because He has bought you, because He wants you with Him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and God, we thank you even for the trials of this life. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have given us these things, not to oppress us, not to fail us, but to lift us up, to pass us, and to take us perfect into your presence forever. Shape us, Lord. Chisel away the parts that don't look like Jesus. Make us like your Son. For we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.